0: As absurd as Hitler was in everything that he did, he was nearly victorious in World War II. Why didn't he succeed further? The answer is a long and complicated story involving a number of key decisions that went against the Fuhrer. If you're looking for a short and easy answer that allows you to avoid listening to the rest of this podcast, the answer is meritocracy. Lord Acton is correct when he mused that absolute power corrupts absolutely. By September 1st, 1939, Adolf Hitler fully believed in his own propaganda. Although he was no longer a believer in anything resembling Christianity, the leader of the Reich had begun to see himself as the chosen one of God whom was sent to cleanse the world of his enemies in order to install a new Thousand-Year Empire, or Third Reich. Although he had never reached a military status higher than messenger, in 1939 he had faith that he knew war tactics better than his established generals. When challenged by the experts, he purged these dissenting voices, leaving him bereft of proven leaders that likely would have succeeded in winning the war for him. By this point, Hitler had become a member within his own cult. That personality cult, which had been carefully crafted by Goebbels, had been used as a tool to unite the German people behind the Fuhrer. It wasn't ever meant to be believed by anyone close to rational. After all, what rational person on this earth would buy what Goebbels was selling? An Adolf Hitler who was a multifaceted genius with heroic, almost superhuman qualities which approached godhood. Let's break that whole thing down. First, Goebbels portrayed Hitler as a multifaceted genius. This was despite the fact that he failed out of multiple schools, couldn't see fit to apply to a backup art school and whose first run at the presidency was an unsuccessful military coup started at a beer hall. His press chief, Otto Dietrich, wrote in his memoirs that, in the 12 years of his rule in Germany, Hitler produced the biggest confusion in government that has ever existed in a civilized state. The second part of his personality cult was the idea that he was a hero out of storybooks. But don't forget that this was the same boy that had left his dying mother's bedside so that he could fail as an artist. He was also a man who had sought out the cushiest job that he could as a messenger in World War I. Keep in mind that Hitler was also the man that had turned and ran after his military coup had run headlong into a police roadblock. This legendary hero had abandoned his own cause so that he could sit and contemplate suicide alone in an attic. The third piece of the cult was that Hitler possessed superhuman qualities that approached godhood. Of course, Hitler himself had used religion to subdue the masses, but he wasn't interested in the Holocaust for any godly reason, as he himself wasn't a believer in either the Jewish nor Christian faith. The only superhuman quality that Adolf Hitler possessed was one of terrible judgment, first and foremost of which was entrusting his own sense of judgment. It would go on to cost Germany the Second World War. Hitler was neither intelligent, heroic, nor perfect. In fact, his judgment was so poor that he would go on to make enough mistakes to ensure an Allied victory. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives to assist in the teaching of history. This is episode 6 in our series on Adolf Hitler, World War II. This is not meant to be a World War II lesson. Rather, it is a Hitler in World War II centered seminar. We'll try to keep the timeline straight and give you an idea of what's going on in the war, but that's secondary to our goal of examining Hitler's decision-making during the war and the consequences of the choices that he made. As far as historical scholarship, we'll be closely adhering to the Hitler is an idiot school of thought, which allows us to examine each and every mistake that the fear would go on to make during the war. While Hitler's mistakes are truly shocking, the Germans still remained in position to win the war as late as 1942. To be clear, there are historians that disagree with the Hitler-is-an-idiot approach that I'm taking. Historian Stephen Fritz is among those who brushes back hard at the conclusion Hitler hamstrung his own war effort. He expresses this thought in his book, The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader. Fritz claims that Hitler excelled in his role as commander-in-chief due to his openness to new ideas, his individual unbending strength of will, and, according to Fritz, a concept of strategy that ranged well above that of his commanders. But this detour involves an extremely narrow lane that I won't be turning down. Touting Hitler as such a strong leader... Means that they should have won. After all, they had nearly every other advantage going for them. Worse, if you meander too far down this road, you end up sounding like a Hitler apologist. Fritz, a distinguished professor at East Tennessee State and author of a number of World War II military books, successfully avoids this. In fact, He pokes holes in his own defense of the fear by claiming that Hitler's own indecision and inability to make clean choices between clashing courses of action which were proposed by his officers are among the reasons for the German war failure. He even makes the claim that the real German problem was not Hitler as military leader, but Hitler as political supremo. He continues by saying that, All the operational prowess in the world could not make up for Germany's flawed political aims. Conquest of a great empire, enslavement of subject races, and racial purification. Hitler the commander failed to prosecute the senseless war dreamed up by Hitler the Nazi Fuhrer. This is where Professor Fritz gets wedged in that narrow lane, as he tells us that the only defense for Hitler as the reason for the German loss in World War II is to blame none other than Hitler for that loss. We avoid separating Hitler the war commander from Hitler the politician. Everyone knew exactly who Hitler was and what his aims were after he had told the world the answers to any and all questions regarding who he was in Mein Kampf. Keep in mind the line, Germany will either be a world power, or there will be no Germany. The beginning of the war proceeded even smoother than everyone thought it would. Keep in mind that a huge justification of the reasoning behind Neville Chamberlain's appeasement policy was that his generals had told the Prime Minister that Germany was, for the moment, vastly superior to the combined allied forces of France and England. At this particular point in history, they also expected the Soviet Union to join forces with them, and still thought that they would come up short against the Nazis. Instead of an allied alliance, the fascists and the communists overcame their ideological differences in order to sign their own non-aggression pact. Just as they had in World War I, the Russians had prematurely dropped out of the war. This time, however, there was little to no hope for America to enter the war and replace them. In 1939, FDR remained fully focused on the US's internal recovery from the Great Depression, Keep in mind that he signed the Neutrality Acts into law. France and England stood alone. The invasion of Poland began on September 1, 1939, and although England and France officially declared war on Germany two days later, they did nothing to save the Poles from neither the Nazis nor the Soviets. Alone Poland had little hope of survival. Inexplicably, they mobilized their sizable forces late. They were able to count 1.3 million military men ready for action against the Nazis' 1.5 million troops. Considering that they were defending their own homes, they should have had more than enough soldiers in order to put up a resistance which would allow the Allies time to rally behind their cause. Their problems weren't with the size of the Polish forces it was with their makeup. While Hitler had fully modernized Germany's forces, his opponent only had 300 planes, most of which were destroyed on the first day of fighting. The Polish cavalry remained astride great war horses, which were never going to be a match for the horsepower of the German tanks. The Germans utilized a new concept of war, which would come to be referred to as Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War. The focus behind this concept were surprise attacks with massive concentrated forces of fast-moving armored units supported by overwhelming air power. The Polish horsemen even had to charge at tanks at Krajanti in order to draw the fire from the motorized vehicles so that their outflanked infantrymen could escape to fight another day. The cavalry charge was so ferocious that it successfully stalled the German advance on the first day, via the sacrifice of one-third of the Polish forces. Part of the reason for the lack of Polish preparation was the propaganda spread by their press which claimed that German tanks were only armored with sheet metal rather than steel. Within a week, the Germans had advanced to Warsaw which would fall on September 29th. Midway through the month, the Polish forces had divided their focus in order to simultaneously respond to an eastern invasion by Stalin's USSR. Although the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact had been publicly reported, the agreement to divide the nation had thus far remained secret. Against the dual threats, the young nation and its million-man army capitulated on October 6, 1939, just a month and a few days after the fighting had begun. So what was Hitler's role in all of this? As Fritz noted, Hitler was a leading proponent of new strategies and tactics. Because of this, Germany was ready for a modern war, while Poland wasn't. In case you're thinking about a rash of jokes aimed at Poland's collective intelligence, America also wasn't ready for modern warfare. In 1939, the U.S. Army was conducting tests to ensure that our cavalry horses would properly wear their gas masks. Spoiler alert, they didn't. In November of 1939, Cavalry magazine, the army's mouthpiece that publicly championed the horse, published an anonymous editorial which was designed to wake America up to the risks of facing the future, but remaining in the past. Germany has recently overrun Poland, the author began, as if speaking to an audience that might have missed the news. What had Poland for defense? According to Elite magazine, over two million men, a tremendous army. Poland also had a very considerable time to prepare herself, for the Germans gave ample warning of their intentions. The article continues by stating that the prime mover of the German attack may be said to abend the gasoline motor, in the air and on the ground. The basis for the Polish defense was the man, propelled only by his legs or by a horse. There is no intention here of laying the entire blame for the Polish defeat upon her cavalry, but it is nevertheless apparent that forty regiments of regular cavalry, aware of the threat of enemy mechanization and therefore presumably trained to fight it, were unable to delay the enemy sufficiently to permit the infantry to prepare anything approaching impenetrable positions. Now consider the United States Cavalry. Although the author left on a rhetorical question that they thought had an obvious answer, the magazine provided an opposing viewpoint titled, Obvious Conclusions, written by B.G. Hamilton S. Hawkins, a retired commandant who was serving as the vice president of the Cavalry Association. He writes, I have been told that I am considered by the enthusiasts for mechanization as hostile to the development of mechanized force in our army. This is not true but I am decidedly hostile to the ideas of those who would replace cavalry by mechanization. It may be true that a few organizations resembling the German panzer division might be useful, especially so if the opposing forces have no cavalry properly armed and trained and with sufficient numbers. Should it happen that the French and British armies are forced to retreat by a sudden powerful thrust by German forces on the Western Front in Europe, as happened in 1914, the Allies will rue the day when they suppressed their cavalry." Quote. At the moment those words were written in 1939, the entire U.S. Army had a mere 28 tanks Luckily for them, the Atlantic Ocean stood between the U.S. and Germany. France only had Belgium between it and the enemy. Looking at the state of the Polish and American armies, it is clear that some credit ought to be given to Adolf Hitler for embracing the mechanization and aerialization of warfare. But for all the praise thrust upon Hitler, just as much blame needs to be given to his backwards-thinking opponents. Airplanes were already a game-changing invention by the end of World War I. Lindbergh had become the biggest celebrity on the planet after crossing the Atlantic in a solo flight. He also spent the interwar years touting Fortress America, his plan to defend the continent with air power alone. The British knew enough about the power of aerial bombardment to force Germany to sign a treaty which would outlaw the shelling of civilian centers. Hitler had even tested his methods via the Condor Legion in the 1936 Spanish Civil War. If other nations, such as Poland, had taken simple steps to modernize their forces, they would have been on a level field with the Fuhrer. The concept of Blitzkrieg was also not particularly innovative. Napoleon conquered Europe nearly twice by conducting surprise attacks via concentrated forces that moved quicker than their opponents. The technology had simply advanced from what he had in his day. Even then, Napoleon was largely successful because he was the first to embrace the new technology of cannons that were available to both him as well as his opponents. The Germans' World War I Schieflin plan similarly called for lightning-fast strikes to knock out their opponents. The concept merely failed because the available technology at the time granted the advantage to the defense, rather than the offense. The French and British recognized the tactics of Hitler and prepared how they knew best utilizing the same knockout drag out defensive tactics that defeated the Germans in World War I. It wasn't that Hitler was a brilliant military tactician. He was just the only one that wasn't stuck in the past. The lightning quick surrender of Poland probably should have been immediately followed up by prompt attacks against the allies. After all, France and England had already both officially declared war against Hitler. And at this point, they each had begun the mobilization of their forces two months earlier. Rather than capitalizing on his momentum, however, Hitler's war machine stalled. It wouldn't be until May of 1940 that Germany moves against France. That is eight months where neither side shifts a troop across the border of their enemy. Some began to refer to the war as Sitzkrieg as well as the Boer War. Germany used these eight months of stalemate to begin in earnest the process of implementing the so-called Final Solution among Poland's 3.5 million Jewish residents. England used the time intelligently to increase its civil air defense in advance preparation for an aerial bombardment. And France used it to place finishing touches on the Maginot Line. The French Maginot Line deserves its own episode for all of the mistakes that went into it. We'll dwell on it because it perfectly encapsulates what went wrong with the Allies' approach to World War II. Mistakenly believing that they were due for a repeat of the Great War, the French decided to build a line of concrete fortresses in order to avoid having to live in a trench again during the winter months. The most useful thing that the Maginot Line did was to serve to this very day as a metaphor for ridiculously expensive efforts that only serve to offer a false sense of security. Charles de Gaulle, the eventual leader in exile of France during the war, opposed the construction of the wall, but his objections were overruled. André Maginot, a veteran of World War I, pushed the decision across the finish line. Construction began in 1930 and finished in 1939, just in time for what should have been a German offensive. The project cost a whopping $9 billion in today's terms. It was expensive, but the wall of fortifications was also a thing of beauty. More than just a wall, it was 12 to 16 miles wide and deep in some places. It had an intricate system of strong points, border guard posts, communication centers, bomb shelters, barricades, supply depots, and observation posts. It was armed to the teeth with the largest and retractable artillery that the world had to offer as well as stationed machine gun posts and anti-tank gun emplacements. The troops that served there were the elites of the French army, and the line stretched for 280 miles. So why didn't it work? There are a couple of reasons. First, the French had shared the plans with the Czechoslovakian government so that they could model their own fortress line in preparation for their own eventual war against Germany. Unfortunately, the Allies had sacrificed the Sudetland and handed the plans as well as the literal finished fortresses over to the Nazis. Intelligently, the Germans practiced the best ways to attack those fortresses, to the point that they knew the line's strengths and weaknesses forwards and backwards. Secondly, France's Maginot line wasn't complete. It was intended to cut through Belgium, which annoyingly remained neutral in the build-up to the war. In their defense, the Belgians recognized that a defensive wall of fortresses running either through their land or on their border would mean that the shelling and stationing of troops would be occurring directly on their land. At least when Belgium had been viewed as a highway in World War I, the enemy had merely passed through their land. Faced with the objections of their neighbors, the French decided to prematurely cut off the line before it reached the English Channel. Hitler made the decision to end the Phoney War and invade on May 10, 1940. This was about a month after he had invaded and secured resource-rich districts in Scandinavia. The German war plan was referred to as the Schittelschnitt, or Cut of the Sickle. It involved three separate armies, one in the north, which would attack the fortresses of the Netherlands, and one in the south, that would approach, that would approach the Maginot Line. The third army could be found in the middle, one million men headed towards the supposed impenetrable Ardennes Forest. The Ardennes was deemed so impenetrable that the French neglected to station any troops nearby, nor could they even be bothered to build any defensive fortifications there. This was another example of World War I thinking at work. Defense Marshal Philippe Pertin described the terrain of the Ardennes as impenetrable. Another marshal referred to the forest as Europe's best tank obstacle. At best, They argued that it would take, at a minimum, two weeks for the crossing to occur – plenty of time for the French to reposition their defensive line. The group of Germans that approached the Maginot Line to the south was just a feint, but the French mistakenly assumed that it was the main force. It never directly attacked the line, but did succeed in drawing in valuable French manpower. Similarly, the Netherlands' attack in the north was first and foremost a diversion designed to distract from the forces approaching the Ardennes. This area saw some actual fighting though, as the Germans desired the Netherlands' air bases as a staging ground for a future assault on Great Britain. The Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg were all officially neutral, which had prevented them from coordinating their defensive strategy with the Allies. Adolf never declared war on these three nations. Instead, he sent his bombers on what appeared to be a run at the British Isles. Shortly after passing the Low Countries, however, they performed a 180-degree turn and dropped legions of paratroopers behind enemy lines. There were two main targets. First were the outdated fortresses, whose guns all happened to be set to face the German border, and thus were unprotected from the paratrooper assault in the rear. Secondly, they attempted to capture Belgium's queen in order to legitimize the invasion. She managed to just escape to England after intense fighting occurred within the palace walls. The forces arrayed against Germany were hopelessly outdated. They only had a mere 140 aircraft, most of which were World War I biplanes. They held out for a measly four days, and officially surrendered on May 15th. The Queen formed a government in exile, one of many that would reside in England for the next three years. To their credit, the Dutch colonies continued to oppose the Germans throughout the war. In four days, the German army had killed more than 5,000 soldiers and civilians but they had met fierce resistance. The Germans reported 2,200 dead, 7,000 wounded, and another 1,300 which were shipped to The Hague as prisoners of war. But the real assault was aimed at the Ardennes forest. How did the Germans manage to get through this impenetrable force which was said to have served as Europe's best tank obstacle? They used the roads, literally, They drove their tanks on the roads that went through the forest. Conveniently, the French had even left the road signs up to ensure that the enemy didn't have to take any unnecessary pit stops. Remember that the French had neglected staging large forces in this area. In fact, the Germans had more tanks and aircraft than the French had soldiers protecting the area. Again, we can credit Hitler for a sound strategy that, without a doubt, hit the Allies with a tremendous surprise. But we can also once again look at those charged with the defense of their homelands and find just as much blame as brilliance in the fear. Despite their public statements, the French were well aware that the Ardennes was, in fact, penetrable. In fact, they had run war exercises regarding a German crossing in 1938. The defeat was so comprehensive that the French decided not to publish the details for fear of destroying the morale of French forces. Two months before the attack, a French military report found the defenses in the area as entirely inadequate and relatively easy to cross. The report's estimate for how long it would take the Germans to cross was only three hours later than it actually took. The Germans had successfully put one million Nazis into French territory behind the Maginot Line. It took them 57 hours. That is the equivalent of a Marvel movie marathon, if you allow for bathroom breaks. Once they were on French soil, the Germans moved with lightning quick speed. Over nine days, from May 15th to the 24th, they swarmed across northern France. A large group peeled off and captured forces along the Maginot Line, who were now facing German guns from both sides of the fortification. When France fell, those soldiers would go on to surrender their arms. The Maginot Line had been completely worthless. The Germans stopped their rapid advance at the coastal town of Dunkirk. The scene of a clear-cut Adolf Hitler mistake. The British expeditionary forces, the whole of the army, had stationed themselves along the Belgium-French border as well as mixing in with their allies along the Maginot Line. When the Nazis blitzed out of the Ardennes Forest, the British buckled and then broke. Days earlier, the British had swarmed into Belgium at the advent of the attack and were hailed as heroes by the now violated neutral nation. They held off the Germans in the world's first ever tank v tank battle. They flew bombing runs to delay the German advances, but these short-lived victories came at too great of a cost. The 135 British bombers had become 72 over the course of two days. The German counter was overwhelming as they flew 1,000 planes at the British defenses. When it became clear that the battle being waged was merely a front for the true threat emerging from the forest, it was too much. The British were pulled out under the cover of nightfall from Belgium and told to retreat into France as fast as possible. The Germans pressed hard and utilized their advantage in motorized vehicles to literally pass some of the retreating French forces. Reportedly, the German soldiers shouted from their vehicles that they didn't have time to capture the French today and would get to it another day. The British made a stand at the Battle of Arras and again heroically held their own, but it was only against the initial first wave of the Germans. By this point, the German tanks and motorized carriers were getting well ahead of the infantry divisions. Again, the British were forced to fall back to what was known as the Gort Line, a point that was designed to be the final holding wall against the predicted German advance. Again, the Germans recklessly advanced and fell upon the expeditionary forces. Another nighttime retreat was ordered, but their first two objectives, Both ports, which would allow them for a safe retrieval, were taken by advancing Nazis before the Brits could reach them. There was one last remaining port under Allied control, Dunkirk. The pages of this month had been filled with a tragic failure by the Allies each and every day of May. It was an inauspicious start to the Churchill administration which had only been given the keys to the British Parliament 12 days earlier. But inexplicably, the British Expeditionary Forces were given a life-saving reprieve from the Germans. At 8pm, on May 23rd, while the German Panzer Division was within eyesight of Dunkirk, the Germans took a break from Blitzkrieg. The delay was extended each of the next two days and the order itself was signed off on by Adolf Hitler. Why stop when they had achieved so much success so quickly? It's a question without a clear answer. What is understood is that had the Germans continued their assault, the entire British expeditionary forces would have either been destroyed or imprisoned, and the war against the West would have been over within the first month of fighting. So what are some of the leading theories for such an order? Some point to the fact that a commander on the ground called for the initial delay. He was concerned with the damage that the tanks had already taken, and the toll on the men of having fought so hard so fast. Additionally, there was concern that the tanks had gotten too far ahead of the slower infantrymen and time was needed to relink the two. There is truth to the theory that the troops needed to rest. The Germans specifically gave their soldiers methamphetamines. The highly addicted stimulant drug facilitated blitzkrieg as Nazi soldiers were able to stay awake and work for 50 hours straight without feeling fatigued. It also switched off their human inhibitions, which made facing their death in battle a little more tolerable. During the invasion of France, Nazi doctors were recommending the soldiers take one tablet of the drug per day, two at night in short sequence, and another one or two tablets after two or three hours if necessary. Still others, however, point to infighting among Hitler's advisors and his own indecision of whom to favor. Field Marshal Hermann Goering attempted to curry favor and whispered in the Führer's ear that Dunkirk was the perfect opportunity to showcase the power of the Luftwaffe, or German Air Force, which happened to be the forces that Goring personally commanded. Hitler studied the maps and decided to grant Goring the opportunity to strike the decisive blow. As a factor in the decision to conserve the panzer division, it was likely that Hitler was already plotting to betray the Soviets, and knew that he would need each and every tank that he could preserve. There are even rumors that it wasn't the Soviet Union on Hitler's mind, but rather an invasion of the United States that he was saving his forces for. There are even theories about Hitler the Humanitarian, When he was cornered in his bunker, he reportedly complained that he had given Churchill a sporting chance at Dunkirk, and that Churchill had failed to reciprocate. Whatever the reasons, the decision was an absolute failure, at least from the German point of view. The sandy, flat beaches of Dunkirk neutralized the German aerial bombardment efforts. There just wasn't any shrapnel damage from the bombs thus minimizing their effectiveness at raining death from above. When the attack-slash-tanks resumed in earnest on the afternoon of May 26, the French held off their stronger opposition, in part because they had captured a German war car the day before that happened to have contained a briefcase with the top-secret war plans for the assault on Dunkirk. With the plans in hand, they were able to effectively counter the German advance. The operation to rescue the British Army from certain defeat was codenamed Operation Dynamo, and it was spearheaded directly by Winston Churchill. The Royal Air Force, or RAF, were to do everything that they could to disrupt German bombing runs. Parliament second-guessed Dynamo and the decision to risk the limited British Air Force was contentious as everyone knew that a prolonged bombing campaign was headed London's way. Every plane lost over French Dunkirk would be an aircraft that would not be available to defend the homeland, but without a daring rescue mission, the beaches of Dunkirk would become one of the world's largest POW concentration camps. The evacuation plan called for 45,000 to be saved over two days. One cruiser, 8 destroyers, and 26 older ships were sent to ferry the besieged soldiers across the channel. After an emergency call was put out for additional help, nearly 400 privately owned small craft were voluntarily supporting the evacuation. Mother Nature provided a timely assist, as the three-day evacuation was aided by nearly constant cloud cover, limiting German bombardment efforts. By the end of the operation, 338,000 troops had been pulled from the jaws of defeat. One-third of those forces were French, and would reassemble to make up the backbone of the French resistance in exile. Keep in mind that the original operation was determined to save a mere fraction of what it achieved, nearly 300,000 more than their original goal. It wasn't all good news for the Allies, though. 90,000 Frenchmen were captured as the last line of defense, keeping Hitler's tanks at bay after the infamous Halt order had been rescinded. These brave soldiers would spend the rest of the war in a concentration camp. After capturing the remaining French forces, the Nazi parade line continued to Paris. The miracle at Dunkirk had concluded on June 4th. By June 16th, the government of Paris had resigned, only to be replaced with the foundations for a new nation, Vichy France a loyalist Nazi republic. The chosen ground for the peace treaty showed that old grievances were on Hitler's mind. He chose the same location in the exact same railcar in which the Germans had been forced to resign World War I in. He didn't even stay throughout the entire ceremony, leaving Midway as a show of zero respect for the new allied French regime. Because of his mistake at Dunkirk, the war would continue. Churchill's miracle didn't guarantee a British victory. In fact, some newspapers at the time reported that civilian morale was in many neighborhoods at the rather low mark of zero. Half of Great Britain believed that they would soon follow France's lead and sue for peace. Churchill, a gifted orator, rose once again to the occasion after the news of France's capitulation had become public. His speech ended with the rousing lines of The military events which have happened during the past fortnight have not come to me with any sense of surprise. Indeed, I indicated a fortnight ago as clearly as I could to the house that the worst possibilities were open. And I made it perfectly clear then that whatever happened in France would make no difference to the resolve of Britain and the British Empire to fight on, if necessary for years if necessary, alone. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind, Churchill continued. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. The war entered a new phase at this point, with the priority being placed upon knocking England out of the war, and that shifts us to Adolf Hitler's next mistake. That involves the London Blitz and the wider aerial war known as the Battle of Britain. Unwilling to risk a crossing of the Channel without first establishing air superiority, Hitler aimed to strangle the British economy through a blockade and weaken it into submission through an advanced bombing campaign. This time, the decision to bomb his way to victory wasn't his mistake. The Germans had 2,600 planes to Britain's measly 640. Air Force Magazine sums up the outlook of the moment, revealing that Joseph P. Kennedy, U.S. Ambassador to Britain, informed the State Department on July 31st that the German Luftwaffe had the power to put the RAF out of commission. In a press statement, Senator Kay Pittman, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee declared, It is no secret that Great Britain is totally unprepared for defense and that nothing the United States has to give can do more than delay the result. General Maxime Weygand, commander-in-chief for the French military forces, until France's surrender predicted, In three weeks, England will have her neck wrung like a chicken. But the German Air Force wasn't designed for the mission they were given. Their planes were designed for civilian bombardment or close bombing support runs for tanks. The Battle of Britain occurred high in the skies above the British Isles and the RAF proved more than capable of shooting down five for every one plane that the Germans could knock out of commission. The main German plane, the Ju-87 Stuka, was even designed with an inverted wing designed to create a wind-powered siren designed to provoke terror during a dive bomb. Effective against unarmed citizens, but an action that made it vulnerable during the dive and less nimble in the air than their counterparts. Additionally, the British used radar in combat. The Germans had only seen a use for that technology on their ships. Even more beneficial, the Brits had cracked the German secret code. By this point, and they could plan their defensive actions with foresight. Hitler was brimming with overconfidence, expecting in July that the Germans would have achieved air supremacy in time for a launch of Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of Great Britain. This would occur on September 15th. The Germans averaged 1,000 bombing sorties per day for two months. But just as the strategy was succeeding in wearing the British forces down, Hitler made a mistake and dramatically altered the targeting orders for the air force, and thus the trajectory of the entire war. Why the dramatic shift? It was a reaction to a minor tit-for-tat spat. In August, two German pilots had flown off course and bombed London by mistake. The RAF retaliated and went on a distant run to drop their payload off at the suburbs of Berlin. Hitler was furious. He completely lost it in the moment, and on September 5th shifted the entire focus of attack from the British airfields to the city of London, thus beginning the London Blitz. This new task had them flying past British strong points to target the capital. It also allowed the defense to concentrate around London. The German losses began to immediately accumulate, while the RAF reached a point where their losses had become smaller than the rate of replacement planes that were coming off of their factory floors. The London Blitz shook the nerve of the Englishmen, but proving the stereotype of the British stiff upper lip, the event galvanized their support for the war. Churchill gave a nightly address encouraging resistance, but even he had his doubts. The Prime Minister personally wrote the address each and every morning, but occasionally was too tired or drunk to deliver it himself. For such occasions, a voice actor read the words that gave Londoners hope. The Blitz resulted in 40,000 casualties and leveled large parts of the city, but offered no strategic value for the Germans. The pressure relieved on the RAF whose numbers had been in steady decline, allowed them to recover, and they began to shoot down the German bombers with impunity. By the end of the Battle of Britain, the RAF had more airplanes than it had at the start of the conflict. On the other hand, the German Air Force lost 30% of its fighters and 25% of its bombers. Again, Hitler's patience wore thin. He prematurely ended the campaign on October 31, 1940, and turned his attention to what would become his next mistake. In December, he began his plans to betray the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pack and begin a two-front war, a previous mistake that had cost the Germans World War I. Although it was always known that the dictator's peace wouldn't last, there was no reason to break the non-aggression pact at this moment. Although they retained their liberty, England was contained, France was subdued, and America remained stuck in neutral. By all accounts, the fierce boredom and frustration were the major reason for the operation. The Germans attacked Russia with the latest and most powerful invasion force in human history, 3 million men across 150 German divisions along with 30 divisions of Finnish and Roman troops which were supported by 19 tank divisions containing 3,000 panzers, 7,000 artillery pieces, and 2,500 aircraft. Hitler's mistake, besides not finishing the British off first, was that he greatly underestimated the lengths that Joseph Stalin would go to defend the Union. The Germans had estimated the Soviet forces, which would oppose them, would max out at 200 divisions. Stalin produced 360. He even introduced a grandmother's draft, which included women up to the advanced age of 60. In an egalitarian moment, more than one million women served at the front lines of the combat, not only as nurses, but as snipers as well. Hitler never mobilized women, instead maintaining them in more traditional, feminine roles. Blitzkrieg was again the order of the day as they expected to roll the communists. The Nazi belief was that within three to six months, the government of Russia would collapse from a lack of domestic support. The German war machine was victorious in its march towards Moscow, but after each victory, their path became blocked by fresh Soviet reinforcements. Stalin went with a scorched earth policy to slow the Germans down. After all, the territory wasn't part of Mother Russia. The land that he was burning was all portions which had been gained via his deal with Hitler. The Germans demanded so much speed that their soldiers only carried what they needed, along with a heavy dose of methamphetamines. They wore light uniforms rather than winter ones for the Battle of Moscow, which began on October 2, 1941. Hitler's generals, normally terrified to contradict the fear, begged him not to assault the Russian capital. The attack was a month later than they had scheduled due to Hitler personally diverting his army through Kiev in order to seize oil fields. The battle lines from Moscow were so large that they would have been visible from space. A wave of frostbite cases decimated the spring-clad Third Reich. The sub-zero temperatures paralyzed the tanks, artillery, and aircraft, the offensive stalled in the forest outside of the city and by the end of November the Germans had lost 730,000 troops. Hitler doubled down on his losses issuing order number 227, a directive to never retreat no matter the strategic circumstances. Here's the text of that order. Such talk of retreat is lying and harmful, it weakens us and strengthens the enemy, because if there is no end to the retreat, we will be left with no bread, no fuel, no metals, no raw materials, no enterprises, no factories, and no railways. It follows from this that it is time to finish with retreat, not a step back, it reads. This resulted in the Germans breaking rather than strategically bending. The eventual Soviet counterstrike pushed the German forces back by 150 miles as they were desperate to hold their ground at all costs. Let's recap this set of mistakes. First, Hitler largely attacked the Soviets out of impatience. Next, they underestimated the Soviet forces by nearly half. Third, he redirected his forces against his general's wishes, causing him to attack Russia in the winter while his troops were supplied for the spring. Finally, he removed all strategic flexibility from his general's hands with a no retreat order. The result was the beginning of a two front war of his own doing. As crazy as it sounds, the Soviet debacle still wasn't enough to free up the British or the ten other nations whose leaders had established a government in exile within their borders. Hitler had built up the Atlantic Wall into a seemingly impenetrable fortress. That day would come closer with the shock attack on Pearl Harbor by Hitler's allies, the Japanese. The act was a unilateral decision and honestly makes a ton of strategic sense on the part of the Japanese. A reading of the political tea leaves clearly indicated that FDR would eventually succeed in his mission to involve the U.S. in the war. In order to successfully defeat Japan, the U.S. would need its navy, a navy that was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. On the day that would live in infamy, The first of three waves of attacks launched at exactly 6 a.m., and it was remarkably successful. Within the first 15 minutes, the battleships California, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Nevada, and Arizona were all sunk, and Maryland, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania were damaged. Although they were caught by surprise, the Americans were returning fire within five minutes of the attack, but at this point it did little good. The second wave hit at 8.50, five minutes after the completion of the first wave. These entirely new Japanese Zeros continued to bombard U.S. warships at will. More than 2,400 Americans were killed in the attack, and another 1,104 were wounded. Incredibly, 21 irreplaceable warships were either sunk or damaged, and 75% of all aircraft were no longer operational. For all of this, the Japanese lost 29 planes and 55 airmen during the three runs against the U.S. So what went wrong? FDR had ordered a secret mission for a number of destroyers and aircraft carriers. The ships that the Japanese had needed to destroy the most weren't in the port at the moment. This was so fortuitous for the Americans that there remains a conspiracy theory that pushes the unsubstantiated theory that President Roosevelt knew of the attack and proceeded to let it happen in order to draw America into the war. Hitler's mistake here was to back his Axis ally and declare war on America on December 11th. The Fuhrer delivered a rambling speech that was full of World War I grievances for the role that they played in defeating the Germans. He accused the U.S. of profiting off of the war, insulted Roosevelt for not recovering from the Great Depression as fast as he had, claimed that he was more popular than Roosevelt, and even called him stupid at one point. His declaration of war was the only stupid act. Hitler held true to this alliance with the Japanese. It would prove to be the only alliance that Adolf Hitler ever held to. Had he not declared war, the US Congress would have likely only declared war against the Japanese. Instead, the US counter-declared war on the Germans, giving the President, as Commander in Chief, control over both theaters of war. Roosevelt chose to prioritize the destruction of Germany first and foremost. This would be the initial beginning of the end for Adolf Hitler. But that end still wasn't foreordained. Unable to cross the channel himself, Hitler sought to make it impossible for England to traverse the 21-mile channel to mainland Europe. He issued Directive 40 on March 23, 1942 three months after the Americans had joined the opposition's cause. Military history now gives us details on the scope of the directive. It called for the construction of 15,000 separate concrete emplacements which would be manned by 300,000 soldiers. The wall was a three-tiered system designed to deal death upon any arrival from southern France to northern Norway. Strategic port cities were the most heavily defended, while lesser ports, military installations, and radar stations became strongpoints, guarded by batteries under independent command. The third line of defense were hardened resistance nests that contained interconnected bunkers. 12 million tons of steel, enough to make 20,000 tanks, and 17 million cubic meters of concrete went into the wall. That amount of concrete is said to be the equivalent of 1,100 Yankee stadiums. From the beginning of its construction, the Atlantic Wall was a formidable foe, so much so that the U.S. military command favored a plan to catapult around the wall instead of directly taking it on. That plan was first labeled Gymnast before eventually becoming Operation Torch. The hope was to immediately open up a second front to aid the Russians. Faced with the beginnings of the Atlantic Wall and the difficulty posed by an amphibious landing, the Allies chose to invade North Africa in hopes to cartwheel into Italy, so as then to attack the southern soft underbelly of Germany. Torch was in effect from November 8th until November 16th, 1942. General Dwight Eisenhower landed 110,000 troops, and began attempts to dislodge German General Rommel. Two months later, Churchill and Roosevelt met in Casablanca to settle on Operation Trident, which would seek to retake Sicily. Nearly half a million fighters would be allocated for the invasion of mainland Europe. They landed on July 10th, and due to his failures, Mussolini was subsequently forced to resign on July 24th. The country would go on to resign from the war on September 8th. At this point, it likely seemed obvious that there would be no need to challenge the channel after all. Italy's choice to capitulate, however, did nothing to dislodge the German forces, who rallied and held off the Allies roughly 30 miles south of Rome. At which point, Mother Nature switched sides and came to the Nazis' aid, as the autumn rains set in making it impossible to break the German defensive lines. Despite the success of the operations in the Mediterranean, the Allies redirected many of its forces to challenge the Atlantic Wall, which is where Hitler's mistakes once again come to the forefront of our story. D-Day remains the largest and arguably most significant military operation in history. Professor Jeremy Black reveals that the event was filled with appalling intelligence failures by the Germans. The Allies put great effort into fooling the Nazis, something that was born following the success of Trident. that mission, The Allies had gone to great lengths to convince the Nazis that Sardinia, not Sicily, was their target. Operation Fortitude became the codename for an elaborate decoy campaign embedded within D-Day's Operation Overlord. This effort was substantially aided by the fact that the British had broken the German secret code. This led them to flip informants and sow disinformation through traditional channels. They teased a second front opening in Greece, or perhaps Yugoslavia. The low countries were potential targets in the campaign, as well as northern routes through Norway and Denmark. But the focus of fortitude was to convince Hitler that Calais, France, was to be the tip of the spear for the Allied landing. They set up the appearance of a significant force near the English side equivalent of Calais. However, this force was largely made up of inflatable tanks as well as inflatable aircraft. The RAF ceased patrols in the area and let German surveillance free range over the growing invasion force. The top American general, George Patton was placed in charge of an entirely phantom army. A complex backstory was created for the illusion and for months British radio promoted fake information about troop deployments and landings that were designed to be intercepted by the Axis. They created a tent city, as well as real fuel depots for the mission. Real vehicles are designed to move, hence the balloon forces were regularly rotated under the cover of darkness. Crude oil was regularly burned to keep a steady haze surrounding the forces, and pyrotechnics were used any time a German shell hit something. Hitler's mistake wasn't that he fell for such an elaborate ruse. The mistake was how long and hard he fell for it. D-Day, the full-scale invasion of continental Europe, occurred on June 6, 1944. On June 9, three days later, German troops remained pinned to Calais, awaiting Patton's real attack. Rather than responding to his commander's pleas to send reinforcements from Calais to Normandy, Hitler rerouted other troops headed to Normandy, the site of an actual army landing on Europe's shores. Rommel, the elite tank general, had been put in charge of the defense of Normandy, but he wasn't given full control. If he had, the story of the Normandy landing would likely be a tragedy rather than a triumph. Rommel desired to have his panzer division as close to the shoreline as possible. This was based upon the theory that the Nazis had to prevent the Allies from gaining a foothold. The tanks would serve to keep them at arm's length and stuck flailing in the sea. Hitler specifically refused his commander's desires and instead stationed the tanks as far away from the shore as he reasonably could. This was because of his paranoia at not knowing where the landing would occur. He also believed that the tanks were essential to the defense of the Atlantic wall, but wanted to first know where the landing occurred so that he could then send in the tanks as reinforcements. What next occurred is one of the most obvious mistakes in Hitler's portfolio. As a true authoritarian, Hitler was a notoriously bad delegator. Rommel was handcuffed with rules that made it impossible for him to move the tanks without Hitler's personal approval. He referred to this strategy as something out of Wolkenkuckuckucksheim, or Cloud Cuckoo Land. Although many Allied soldiers were either parachuted behind enemy lines, or like my grandfather, paraglided past them the night before, the amphibious landings began at 6.30 in the morning which was far too early for the fear, who, based on all of the pictures I have ever seen of him, badly needed his beauty rest. An SS prisoner of war revealed Hitler's personal habits to British intelligence. He was said to have favored waking up at around 10 a.m., had his coffee, bread, and marmalade, and then received visitors, including his doctor. That doctor regularly prescribed a host of drugs, including methamphetamines and opioid tonics to help with the fear's restless nights. On D-Day, Hitler slept till 11 a.m., and astonishingly, none of his aides were willing to wake him earlier, despite the obviously significant event that had been underway for the previous four and a half hours. In the key moment of the war... Hitler snored on. When he did wake, he became convinced that the landing, the most ambitious invasion in history, was a mere feint, and refused to allow the tanks to move. The tanks, which were a mere 10 minutes away, sat idly by while 10,000 German border troops faced 175,000 of the Allies in Normandy all of whom were intent on killing them and taking their position. It wasn't until 4pm that Hitler allowed the tanks to move and reinforce the wall, but by that point the Allies had achieved air supremacy over the channel, and the tanks were now sitting ducks. The battle was ending, and once the Allies had gained their foothold, there would be no path to victory available to the Germans. But that doesn't mean they gave up. Hitler was hell-bent to go down fighting. Remember, he believed in Germany being a great power or nothing at all. The Germans beat a steady retreat through northern France and the Low Countries. Every day that they held allowed Adolf Hitler to murder more inmates in the Holocaust. Faced with armies steadily closing in from the east and west, one would expect the Germans to throw everything that they had at their enemies. It is our mistake, however, to think that those enemies were the Russians, Americans, and Brits. Instead of halting the Holocaust and shifting all of the SS soldiers operating the camps, Adolf instead sped up the elimination of the Jews. Trains on the Eastern Front were only utilized for traffic related to the Holocaust. He didn't authorize them to bring reinforcements, transport men back from the front or use them to resupply the men with common-sense items like winter jackets. In January of 1945, there were 45,500 guards that were part of the concentration camp system. That is the equivalent of eight divisions that Hitler held back from the fighting. In 1944, Hitler introduced a new draft that brought in soldiers who had reached the not-quite-too-old age of 40. All of those soldiers were thrown at the Holocaust instead of the Eastern or Western Front. There was no one left that was eligible to draft for the actual war. He did make one last effort to dislodge the enemy which threatened him, but that just became another mistake known as the Battle of the Bulge. The battle was itself a mini-war, during which Adolf Hitler threw everything that he had remaining at the Western Front. The goal was to shock the Allies and recreate the overwhelming success he had experienced at the beginning of the conflict four years earlier. The Allies had advanced to the French-Belgium border. Instead of continuing a defensive retreat, Hitler blitzkrieged like it was 1940. He sent 30 German divisions through the Ardennes Forest. He expected to blast through the American line and then surround-slash-push the remaining Allied lines back to Dunkirk. This time, he believed he would finish them off once and for all. A combination of the Americans being too strong and the Germans being too weak resulted in what Winston Churchill called the greatest American battle of the war. The American line bulged, but did not break. The defense of the Ardennes resulted in 75,000 casualties for the Allies from December 16th to January 25th in 1945. The Germans attempted to show that they had learned from their mistakes. They parachuted English-speaking German soldiers behind enemy lines and dressed them up in American uniforms. They also altered road signs to sow confusion among the foreigners. Trivia came in handy for the Americans who were now tasked with ridding their own forces of the intruders. Questions like, what is the capital of Illinois? Identifying offensive line positions on an American football field and the task of naming Betty Grable's husband were asked of any man arriving at base. The Germans could learn slang from American POWs, but they have never been able to grasp the NFL. The Germans lost 120,000 soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge, as well as equipment, that it was now incapable of replacing. It would prove to be the last German offensive of the war. Now it was just a question of who would arrive at Hitler's bunker first, the Soviets or the Americans. But we'll save that for the next episode, which will be our last on Adolf Hitler. As we conclude this podcast, let's quickly examine that idea that Hitler could have or perhaps should have won World War II. Hitler's mistakes are clear. He didn't capitalize enough on the quick capitulation of Poland. He could have avoided the phony war and quickly moved on to the West. After they did move with conviction, Hitler held back his tanks from delivering the fatal blow at Dunkirk. A miracle rescue had bought the Allies some time, but they still appeared to be dead men walking. The German plan to gain aerial superiority over the British Isles was working, but after a random bombing mission against Berlin had personally angered the fear, the mission was changed to a dangerous and costly blitz against London. The losses added up, and England won the Battle of Britain. He still could have continued with his plans for an invasion across the Channel, but instead decided to attack the Soviet Union. His army was victorious at first, but his personal decision to neither adequately prepare his men for the weather nor to let them strategically retreat meant that the eastern front was another failure put at the feet of the fear. He disregarded his officers' requests regarding when to attack Moscow, instead forcing them to delay by a month so he could attack Kiev instead. This meant that he was fighting Stalin, the Red Army, and perhaps the Russians' greatest weapon. Jack Frost. After Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hitler unnecessarily declared war, thus ensuring that America would target him in addition to the Pacific Theater. He fell for the Allies' big lie that Calais was the target of Patton's Ghost Army, and further disregarded his general's advice regarding the defense of the Atlantic Wall, specifically preventing the tanks from dislodging the Allied forces. His authoritarian needs plus his authoritarian response to being woken up from a pleasant slumber meant that the Allies would reverse all of his early gains to quickly establish the old World War I battle lines. Hitler then ordered a counteroffensive with drugged-up troops that were both too few and over-exhausted to accomplish the task. He had the ability to bring in fresh troops from the Holocaust Division, but instead decided to concentrate on finishing his war against the Jews rather than the one for his country's survival. From all of this, you should see that it is clearly easier to argue the Hitler is an idiot theory regarding World War II. We haven't even gotten to two other mistakes that Hitler made, namely his lack of use of women in the workforce. This was a massive advantage for all other nations in the war, Today, Rosie the Riveter remains a key symbol for how America was able to maintain an ultra productive economy while her men were across the Atlantic fighting. Hitler also erroneously canceled his advanced weaponry research program after the fall of France. He was so confident in victory that he felt it was a waste of resources, which he then had redirected towards the Holocaust. The Wundervauf program was even working on a transatlantic bomber. could have struck at the U.S.'s east coast. The project was named the America Bomber. Hitler canceled the program while the Americans pushed massive resources into the Manhattan Project, which was led by a number of European and German refugees. In 1938, German scientists discovered nuclear fission, but it was America that would weaponize it first. Just imagine what would have happened if Hitler, and not Truman, had the world's only access to the atomic bomb. The fact that Hitler was an idiot shouldn't take away from the sacrifice that so many individuals made to stop this imbecile. It just makes it more clear to us that we have to always oppose evil. The world got lucky that Hitler was our opponent rather than a more capable version of him that had all of the advantages between 1939 and 1944. We need to make sure that neither another idiot nor a more capable despot ever gets that close to the levers of power again. Only by learning from the past can we hope to achieve that goal.